Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Look, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. No, when it you're comes never to things short. Go on. I'm five You're five. Over. When it comes to opera, we're the only ones bringing you everything you need to know about the art form, the people, and the stories every damn week. And you always pronounce them so well. Check it out. <laughs> five bucks buys an ad on social media. Ten bucks covers our website for a month, and twenty bucks makes a hundred lapel pins. So there are like maybe a hundred people in this world that have a lapel pin. So we want to double that number. Seriously, right. 20 bucks. That's less than what Oliver spends each week on light-bodied red wines, whatever they are. <laughs> like Gamay, you know, like a Cru Beaujolais, you know. Don't think it can give? Yes, you can. Simply review us on Apple Podcasts, share our Facebook posts, or retweet us. Most of all, keep listening to America's Talk radio show about opera. Oh. Okay, that was too many calls to action. So the main call to action is give us money, because that's obviously how you can help us. The other thing you can do is review us on iTunes, is that what you said? So if you don't feel like giving us money and you don't feel like spending precious time typing, what you can do is just click that share button when you see our post on Facebook, and you could like our page, actually. If you like our page, that helps us get to more people because Facebook is evil, and it basically helps us see your friends. Most of all, <laughs> keep listening to America's Talk radio show about opera. Enjoy the podcast. And retweet, because Toby loves that. <laughs> Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera. Period. Here in the Lakeside Studio, we're live on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1, Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined tonight by Oliver Camacho and Tobias Wright. All right, tonight we play Monday Evening Quarterback on the production of Jake Heggie's opera Dead Man Walking, now playing at Lyrica Opera of Chicago. And in Shock Talk, we take a look at a recent article in The Atlantic magazine by Lin-Manuel Miranda about the role of art in politically turbulent times. But first, we go inside the huddle with composer David T. Little, whose works have been hailed by the New York Times as, quote, proving beyond any doubt that opera has both a relevant present and a bright future. Plus, two-minute drill, opera singers get new bodies, opera houses get new seats, among other stories, and, of course, you can call us on air. Get your voice heard in that third segment tonight, 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories it's 847-866-9687. You can also tweet us at Opera Box, where you can also post on our Facebook page. Got a great show for you tonight here with Oliver Camacho and Tobias Wright. We're here. You're back, George. I know, George. It yeah. was so weird to see you tonight. Yes. And you're, all the red in your hair is gone. What happened? Um, do, no, it's been a crazy, crazy So when you're stressed, your, your hair goes more... Get my, get my first gray hair. Hmm. I'm just... Look, I'm just grateful... To be here with you two talking about mm. things that I love with people that I love. Be grateful for Weston Williams, who totally saved our bacon. He did. Yeah. He, he did. He really, yeah. really did. Um, yeah. George, did you happen to see that Patrick Mahomes is not dead and, in fact, played this last weekend for the Kansas City Chiefs? Well, that was the funny thing. The last time I saw you, Patrick, I, uh, I, uh, oh, man, last time I saw you, Tobias, mm-hmm. <laughs> he, Patrick, I believe was undefeated. Yeah. Well, it's been that long. And then he, his knee fell off. 
uh, and the Chiefs found just failed spectacularly and found a way to waste 446 yards and three touchdowns. Uh, who, it, who does he play for? I'm sorry. The Kansas City Chiefs. Oh, nice. That's your hometown. I, I like to Ish. say that he's my, uh, my future son's namesake. You're going to name your son Pat- Bortles? I mean, uh, Mahomes? Pat- Patrick Mahomes. You're just going to call him Mahomes? Patrick Mahomes Parks Wright. Mahomes. <laughs> Mahomes Wright? Mahomes Wright. <laughs> it might be. I'll have to talk to Leah about it. <laughs> oh, I said are, her name on air. Are you <gasps> proposing to your girlfriend or asking her to be the father of your child? We're getting there. Okay. That's nice. We're getting there. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> Any other sports talk before we uh, move on to the big show? I don't think so. Let's do it. Huddle up. Let's go. Inside the huddle. Skin stretched around a bony frame. Angle shapes and corners revealed under baby fat. It's heavenly, so it's heaven. The fate is you always want. The New Yorker calls composer David T. Little one of the most imaginative young composers on the scene. Dog Days, David's acclaimed collaboration with the librettist Royce Vavrek, is in rehearsal here at Northwestern's Beanin School of Music. And in 2020, Chicago Opera Theater rounds out its season with David's one-man opera Soldier Songs. David T. Little, hopefully on a wing and a prayer, joins us now via phone from New York City. David, are you in the house? Yes. Can you hear me? Oh, we can. Oh, thank goodness. Oh, it worked. Our studio didn't <laughs> fail us tonight. We always say a little prayer. Hey, David, when was the last time you were in Chicago? About four days ago. What? And you didn't come in? Saying, no, I'm just kidding. Well, we, we tried. <laughs> so the days just didn't align. I was not here on a Monday. That's great. We're so happy you're calling from uh, New York area, and I just wanted to say that um, I hope that I don't jinx this call, because the last composer we had on by phone was uh, Jake Heggie, and that was the episode that got lost in the internet. (laughs) Oh, no. So we're all knocking on wood. (laughs) So it's Veterans Day. Happy Veterans Day. Your card is in the mail. Um, So that, that would be a natural starting point for us to talk about soldier songs. Um, can you talk to us about Soldier Songs? I understand that it's a one-man show for a star baritone. We're going to have the original barahunk Nathan Gunn here in Chicago in May. Uh, but I'm curious to hear, I know I'm, I'm asking you a lot of questions at once, but I'm curious to hear how different baritones have interpreted the work and how maybe you've seen new ideas about your own music based on interpretations. But please tell us about Soldier Songs. Well, yeah, so Soldier Songs is a one-man show. Uh, it was originally premiered uh, by Pittsburgh New Music Ensemble in 2006. And then I started working with Beth Morrison and uh, Yuval Sharon on a new production that premiered in 2011. And this production premiered in uh, 2014 at the Holland Festival, uh, directed by Ashley Tata. And um, it's been great to, to have a piece that has you know kind of legs like this and that a lot of baritones have really wanted to sink their teeth into. This will be Nathan Gunn's role premiere in Chicago, mm. so that'll be really exciting to have him taking up this, this work. Um, other baritones who have done it, uh, David Adam Moore, Timothy Jones, Christopher Burchett, uh, Jim Bobick, and then um, Michael Mays. Ah, Michael Mays. I, I would say, you know, of the, you asked, you know, what, what singers sort of surprised me, I think Michael did it in Des Moines, and really just made it his own thing. It was really exciting to see. I mean, he really, you know, he's such a such an in, 
intense and dedicated performer. Not that everyone else I, I just mentioned isn't. I mean, everyone does just beautiful work. Um, but there was something about his rehearsal or his, his performance of it that was, was slightly different. And I wonder, partially if it was because I wasn't in the room for a lot of these rehearsals that, you know, with David and Christopher Burchett and I've really been sort of involved in the rehearsal process and with Michael, I, I wasn't. And so he really kind of took it in his own direction. And it was really beautiful and really kind of illuminating to me about the, the, the power of letting go of your work as a composer and letting the, the performer really just make it their own. Well, that, that's a good place. I want to actually pivot to Dog Days uh, based on what you just said. But I also have to say that Michael Mays is somebody we've been wanting to get on the show. And we're doing Dead Men. Well, Lyric Opera Chicago is doing Dead Men Walking here uh, right now. And um, I really have not yet seen Michael Mays in the role of Joe de Roche, Joseph de Roche. And I know that like he is the de Roche of our time. And so I'm really right. excited to, I mean, you talk about him. He's, he's uh, a uh, also a podcaster. I don't know if you know that, but like he used to have a show called like the Texapolitan Opera Roadshow or something. Like right, that. He's, right, he's hilarious. Right, right. And we're, we're sort of like friends on Facebook and I see all his antics and all the gigs that he gets around town. And it's really exciting to he's hear that, fantastic. that yeah. he is as, you know, captivating as a performer as he is like a personality on the airwaves. But you're talking about like letting your work go and just seeing it take its own life. And right now you are uh, in rehearsal for... Uh, a new production of Dog Days here with, with Alan yeah. Pearson. Was Alan Pearson the original conductor? Alan was the original conductor, okay. yeah. And he actually was the piece, he really helped get the piece off the ground initially. He conducted parts of it. We did about 20 minutes in a workshop at Carnegie Hall, sort of a, a young artist concert with Don Upshaw and Oswaldo Golihov. And he took it to Jed Wheeler at Montclair. And, and Jed ultimately commissioned the, the rest of the piece and connected us with Robert Woodruff and I mean, so Alan, Alan's really been vital to the piece since the very beginning. So this is the work that is definitely, you know, uh, made your star rise. Not to say that you, your other work isn't important and getting a lot of attention critically, but it seems that you will be forever identified with this opera. If, like, you were to die tomorrow, God forbid, it would be on, <laughs> on your tombstone, composer of Dog Days. Uh, and you've seen many productions at this point of the show, but now you're working on it with students here at Northwestern University's Bean and School of Music. What is it like to work with essentially kids uh, on such a dark show? Well, I have to say the performers at Northwestern are just phenomenal. And um, I got to cats. meet them last year. <laughs> um, I was here for a concert with Donald Nally and had a, just a meeting with, with everybody and got to know them a little bit, and then spending this last week with them in, in rehearsal, and just seeing them, again, really just take, own these characters, really take risks and take chances on on interpretive things. And, you know, and, and, and for me now, and maybe because of my experience with soldier songs, I'm, I'm certainly going to say, oh, you know, this is a little early, or this is a little higher, a little lower, whatever, little sort of micromanagey composer things, um, just to help them really be a set of ears for them to, to kind of help them be as precise as possible. But the interpretations are pretty varied. I mean, we have two different casts, and um, the same character is, you know, reads very differently depending on who's performing it, and it's so beautiful to see. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of the, the subject matter, I think they're, they're just pretty fearless, you know. They're really digging into it, and, um, you know, I think it's... Uh, it's kind of great for, for, 
think younger singers to to have to kind of grapple with some of these issues um with which they maybe haven't had to deal with i mean god really none of us really have to deal with some of the, the real issues in the piece but um some it's world war three it's post-apocalyptic yeah yep. <laughs> yeah hopefully no world war three hopefully no starvation hopefully you know but um but you know it, it, to play those roles you have to access something deep in you that is um that not every role allows you to do uh, or requires you to do and so i think it's really uh it's powerful to see young performers going there and and these these i mean these students are are killing it they're going there in a big way it's really exciting well i think that uh 21st century any you know opera composed after 1975 a good sign that it has legs is that it is produced at the collegiate level so is this the first production of dog days at the collegiate level it's not actually it's the second louisiana state did it uh, i guess about two years ago and they were the first um but this yeah but this is the second um and it's really exciting so can you uh preview a little bit uh, of the um or c- the compositional language you use to put together dog days or sure. genres it's, that you might be referencing so that we can get a little taste of it. Yeah, well, so with Soldier Songs, this was a, an important piece in my development as a composer because, you know, I grew up listening to all kinds of different music. I grew up listening to, you know, Megadeth and Ministry and Nine Inch Nails, but I also grew up, you know, performing Rodgers and Hammerstein in my high school musicals, right? So that the sort of American songbook and musicals, the, the sort of classic musical theater language was really deeply embedded in me. And so, um, you know, when I was studying composition, I got this idea that, well, none of that belongs. You know, we have to study Weber, and we have to study Zanakis, and we have to be very um, kind of erudite in, in what we we allow into our scores. And at a certain point, I just realized that, that was I was just being dishonest by doing that, um, that for me personally, I needed a more eclectic language. And so with Soldier Songs, I said, look, I'm just going to let the the, the story or the dramatic moment dictate uh, to some extent genre and let the let let genre be a tool like melody harmony rhythm in the creation of these uh, of this dramatic story <clears throat> and I found that incredibly liberating and I then found that the, the piece worked that I liked it I was very happy with it uh, and so I, I continued doing that for, for quite a while and now I'm I'm, I'm sort of at a point where I'm, I'm examining if I'm going to continue with genre as an ex, as so explicit a, a compositional tool, but we'll see how that how that works out. But uh, in Dog Days, I think the same thing applies, that you have certain characters who, you know, like the brothers, uh, they have a, an aria or a duet, go forth and repopulate. And it's very kind of Broadway in a certain way. Um, but then you have this ending, which is basically a noise sonic sculpture that is, you know, there's no Broadway anywhere to be found in the, in the epilogue. Um, and so, and I think, you know, style helps to can understand characters through style in addition to all kinds of other things. I think it's just an, an additional tool that we have. Um, and, you know, having electric guitar in the orchestra, I think, also helps that because you have access to not just stylistic references, but sort of a sonic snapshot through different kinds of distortion or delay or you know you can evoke a lot with with relatively little 
David, this is Toby. We actually met um, at Opera Philadelphia. I was the tall, handsome fellow that was next mm. to Oliver. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this is so just kind of to go, you know, along with what you're saying there about the genres influencing uh, one one another. I think it's pretty fair to say that there's a lot of rock music in particular um, in your compositions. And so can you talk about the difficulty of navigating those waters uh, between the what we might call traditional classical music and rock music um, and the audience, audience expectations? <coughs> well, <coughs> excuse me, I think one of the big you're excused <laughs> one of the things i realized early on was that a lot of the that for me at least the sound world needed to be consistent with the material so you know i feel like you, you as a student i used to hear a lot of pieces for like i don't know a classical ensemble with a drum set in in the you know and i'm a drummer so maybe i was extra sensitive to this but um you know, hearing a drum set in a concert hall, like that's not a drum set to me. A drum set to me is close mic through speakers, you know, through, through a recorded, you know, mediated recording experience. And so um, I think about that kind of stuff a lot. And I think the choice to amplify Dog Days and Soldier Songs uh, is in part because of that feeling. You know, I wanted to, mm-hmm. to be able to re- reference things and have them be somewhat authentic um, even though we are, you know, we're in an opera and it's not a rock club, um, but that the the references would be clear and understood, um, and I think it's, I think it can be difficult to do that sonically without amplification. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we know that you're working on the, your children's opera as your next work, but uh, I would love to <laughs> circle back to Opera Philadelphia and maybe even to Prototype. Um, mm-hmm. You were part of the first Prototype Festival, Mike. Understanding that correctly, I was. Yeah. Okay, and you also did a composer in residence program at Opera Philadelphia. That's right. Yep. So that's stuff that people can find out uh, on your website. But can you tell us what opportunities or what resources from those, uh, you know, fellowships, so to speak, uh, helped you compositionally? Uh, what tools did you gain, or what experiences were really helpful? in, uh, you know, getting to that next step of your career? I'd say in certain ways, they're both fairly similar in, in, in how I engaged with them. Um, and I should say, you know, Prototype is the sort of brainchild of Beth Morrison, Beth Morrison Project, and also here. And my relationship to, to Beth goes back uh, to around 2006 is when we first met and started developing the production of Soldier Songs that Yval Sharon did. Um, and I, so I think with both of, with both Beth and Opera Philadelphia, <coughs> excuse me, fighting a cold, um, you know, they're both amazing at trusting the artist to know what they need and to, you know, believe them when they, the artist, when they say, oh, I need this or that, and to try to help guide them in a way that is supportive. Um, but that is never going against the best interest of the of the, the writers. Um, I think they they're really exceptional at this, and I think as a result, you see the quality of the the, the premieres that they you know that they they present. Um, so you know, in the case of Opera Philadelphia, I mean that was a the residency program was really an opportunity for me to kind of go back to school. And I specifically went in to study rep 
So I was spending a lot of time looking at Verdi and Puccini and going to open rehearsals and, and you know, thinking about, you know, looking at them, how does Verdi write for Metto? How does uh, he approach this this climax moment in the score? You know, looking really at the at the repertoire in a way that I hadn't had an opportunity before to do, because we don't really do that in schools. You know, as when you're studying composition, you don't have a ton of time to do that because there's so much you have to learn. And so it really becomes a, a, a kind of postgraduate specialist moment um, that where you really dig in. So that was a lot of what I did with Harvard Philadelphia. Um, I'm so and, glad you said that because I feel like, and this is my prejudice against modern opera, that composers don't know how to write for the voice. And I know that like we need new, you know, sonic languages and whatnot. And it's it's good to like stretch what the human voice can do. But there comes a point where singers have to sing and they have to let their voices unfurl in phrases and they have to have lyrical moments just to be healthy. And um mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah. that's what Verdi and Puccini for that matter do, do so well. Exactly. Toby, yeah, no, you, I, I, I feel totally like agree. you would want to jump in you on know, that. I think because nope. I had that experience playing, you know, playing Judd Fry in Oklahoma and, you know, Georg von Trapp and The Sound of Music and whatever in, in high school, I had had the experience of being on stage and singing. Um, I would never sing publicly now, um, but that that experience, I think, was it kind of instilled some sort of muscle memory in me at least a little bit so that I could um, at least have some sort of a, um, a head start on that study. But it wasn't really until I got into the opera Philadelphia program. I mean, if you look at the, like the baritone writing in, in soldier songs versus the baritone writing in JFK, um, it's much friendlier in JFK. And, you know, there's only one high G instead of, you know, seven, or, you know, so you just sort of get to get to know um, how to pace a role, which is a different in something, you know, you don't learn that until you're doing it. So you have to learn it, you know, David, it's, George, please tell me that there is footage out there of David T. Little singing Judd Fry. Um, I don't think there's actually footage. There is, I know that there is a photograph <laughs> um, that I think I, there was some talk of, of Boozy and Hawks tweeting it out. I don't think that ever happened. But, I, but <laughs> But they do have it. <laughs> if, they, if they tweet it, we're going to retweet it. I'm going to wrap it up okay. for you. Um, of course, you went to University of Michigan. We were talking before the show about that yep. for a composition. Did you go to a, a, a football game while you were there or a hockey game? I went to exactly one football game against Utah. Wow, you remember who it is against? I remember because I remember I, I you know went wearing like all black and it was really hot and I was super uncomfortable and... <laughs> And I, I went with uh, with um, Joel Puckett, who was there at the same time with me, and he was just sort of like, "What are you doing, man? We're at a football game." And I'm like, "I don't know how to do this. So, like, I'm just, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing." It really Still solidified solidified your, your musical path. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I'm not, I'm not a football guy. I'm sorry. Yeah. Dog Days is at Northwestern University November 21 through 24, and then Soldier Songs is at Chicago Opera Theater. That's May 14 through 17 of 2020. David T. Little, thank you so much for hanging out with us tonight on Opera Box Score. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to talk with you all. Ashley plays Monday evening quarterback, and we take a closer look at the role of art in times of political upheaval. That old chestnut. That's all next. Only on America's Talk Radio Show about opera, WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1, Evanston, 
Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Support for Opera Box Score is provided by Boston Early Music Festival, presenting La Storia di Orfeo, Friday, November 29th, and Sunday, December 1st, at New England Conservatory's Jordan Hall in Boston. Oh, yeah, good old Beantown. Hey, would you like your chowder? Park your car in Harvard Yard. <laughs> That was really good accent. That by was the just way. like no, that just, was bad. That was like seeing Dead Man Walking. That was like Dead Man Walking. <laughs> yeah. Dead Man Walking. Orpheus, the divine musician who ventures to the underworld in a desperate bid to save his beloved Eurydice, 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 has been. Hey. An, has been an enduring source of inspiration for composers across the centuries. Superstar. Superstar countertenor Philippe Jarouski, also known as my husband, and sublime soprano Amanda Forsyth draw on three Italian Baroque operas to create a vivid pastiche of this tragic legend for the concert stage. Yeah, this story never gets old. Nope. I mean, Oliver, you referred to Eurydice in all these different languages. There's all these different versions of this tale. It is such a great story, including a play by Sarah Rule. It's just really important when revisiting this story that you remember to never look back. Agree. Yeah. All right. Grammy award-winning music degree. Is that that's what? <laughs> that's how I know that. That's incredible. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Grammy award-winning musical directors Paul Odette and Stephen Stubbs lead arias and duets by Claudio Monteverdi, Luigi Rossi, and Antonio Sartorio. With these incomparable artists in a program also featuring instrumental interludes from other Baroque masters, performed by the all-star Boston Early Music Festival oh, Chamber. And you really get your money worth on this program. Yeah, you do. Don't it's you nice that your name's yeah. pronounced correctly. You're making me oh, hungry. Say, don't miss Philippe Chiruski and Amanda. Forsyth in La Storia di Orfeo. For tickets and more information, go to bemf.org, B-E-M-F dot org. End of ad. Pass or fail? Here's Monday Evening Quarterback. Tobias, the best it's, intro music ever. It, it will never not make me extremely <laughs> joyful like to have that plan for the for the uncommon man for the common man. It's I, good. It's that music from Monday Evening Quarterback just yeah. like takes me back to my childhood Aww. and and staying up late and like sneaking in and like watching TV when I shouldn't have and it was always like Monday Night Football. Shedding a tear over uh, here, Tobias. It's George Stoyanovich from Fifty Three Yards to beat the Denver Broncos, nineteen ninety eight. It happened. It's Tobias Wright, Oliver Camacho next to me in the Lakeside Studio here on Opera Box Score. David T. Little just with us there for over 20 minutes. He's going to be here soon. And if you come to see Dog Days, if you come early, you can be a part of the pre-concert talk. Um, It starts at 645. That was one of my, you know, we we do a lot of interviews where it just feels like people are talking about themselves and it's just yeah. vanity yeah. i could listen to david t little talk about uh, anything yeah. and i would feel like i was learning something well that's why i asked him <laughs> about michigan football because i i wanted i knew he would say something <laughs> engaging and articulate well, he was so unimportant we, we we were at opera philadelphia toby and i at a show and he just like was sitting next to us like hey, i'm I'm a composer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and then we're like, wait a second. <laughs> one person it was one of those embarrassing moments. It was so unassuming. But I'm full of moments like that where, yeah. Well, you know. we three are all here. Ashley Hardgrave, uh, team member, is not here. She's busting out high Gs and hosts the planets down at some. Um, They're rehearsing Mary, Mary We Go, or what's it called? 
welcome stool. I I forget like um, well, the planet. No, but they also started rehearsal. The CSO chorus started. You just said concert. welcome stool. Yeah, that was a, that was a joke <laughs> for their Christmas show. But in all her it. bags of spare time, she did go see Jake Heggie's Dead Man Walking at Lyric Opera of Chicago, and this was her Monday evening quarterback. Hey guys, it's Ashley here. I am off making music elsewhere tonight, but I wanted to give you a little Monday evening quarterback with my experience at Dead Man Walking at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Now, if you've been listening to the show for a little while, you know that I have eagerly been anticipating this production, and I put it on my must-see list in episode 182 for these reasons. Female conductor Nicole Paymon in her lyric debut, Heggy, McNally, Reset. Graham, McKinney, and Haley in their lyric debuts take all my money. Anyway, as with any newer opera, much of what the audience members take away is going to be is about the macro level view of the piece. You're likely seeing this for the first or the second time, so you're trying to form an opinion on the piece as the whole while you're simultaneously evaluating things like voice and production elements. So, for example, the difference between this and Carmen, I've seen Carmen many times. There's a formula. I know the score. I know the plot. I'm anticipating high notes. There's only a few ways to direct that death scene. So what I'm really waiting for is Mikaela and how she's going to do Jadi. But anyway, back to Dead Men Walking. I did enjoy it. I definitely recommend this production to anyone who's got even a remote interest in this work or even needs an accessible way to start hearing opera themes because a couple of these will kick back again and again. It did not disappoint as an overall piece or production. There were definitely some highlights and a couple of lowlights. Let's talk about the highs. Patricia Reset as Sister Helen. Oh, let's take a moment. She was in great voice the night I saw her, and she straddled that nuance between the folk church tunes and the soaring classical technique needed for the more demanding arias with absolute finesse. Stunning. Gorgeous. Her acting gave Helen this over-eager earnestness that she needs to uh, travel to Angola alone. Her scenes with Susan Graham, who actually originated the role of Sister Helen, were thoughtful and notable and delightful to watch. So, brava, reset. Shout outs to the chorus. There is a lot going on between the prison yard scenes and the children's chorus and the featured choristers and the Catholic school scenes. They, uh, they did the things, and I was pleased. Stage direction. You know, okay, I've heard of two camps here when it comes to dead men walking. You can either start with the imagery of Joseph blatantly committing the crime and setting him up for the audience as clearly guilty, or you can make the opening imagery vague so that the audience journeys through the show not fully aware of his guilt until the end. You know, I thought I would be disappointed with the choice to show the crime in the beginning and eliminate that mystery of did he do it. I was wrong. The opening scene, it's it's dark. It's intense, and you will absolutely be uncomfortable, and you should but it's also darkly beautiful. In this production, it's what's needed to tell that story, and I'm more appreciative to Leonard Folio for that choice than I thought I would be. The tableau images of the Act One finale, Joseph's appeal, and the night of the execution are absolutely beautiful. They're powerful. Did I cry? Yes, it was worth it. Scenic design. The visuals are bold. The rake is steep. And all of them were necessary with the stage direction. Absolutely gorgeous. I particularly love the projections that were done by Elaine McCarthy during Helen's drive to the Angola State Prison. 
couple of unexpected joys. Uh, the Quartet of Parents, which uh, the gentleman wore Wayne tickets, Alan Glassman, and what I think is his lyric debut, uh, and two Ryan Center connections. Uh, if, if anybody remembers the names of the young ladies, please give them a shout out. They were also delightful. Um, but the four of them sounded really great together the night I attended. Ryan McKinney's acting as Joseph in the execution scene was starting, startlingly accurate and deeply impactful. Now, I won't call these lows, but I do have a few follow-up questions for some elements of the production that I did not understand. We got to do it. Let's talk about the diction. Let's talk about the English affectation. Guys, how did we get here? These dialects were all over the place. Was it that the diction coach was able to get through to some singers and not others? I'm sorry. I got to pull rank here. I'm a product of the Mid-South, and I have family in the Three Rivers Highway 1 corridor. A lot of those accents were decidedly not accents of the region or within even two states of it. It's a beef I have with a lot of Southern English opera dialogues. Come on, how many over-the-top productions of Susanna have these hand-to-forehead Tennessee Williams vowels collapse it over a chaise lounge? Opera guys, stop doing this. I found myself constantly distracted with these over-the-top quote-unquote southern efforts of some of the secondary characters and more than once I said out loud nobody talks like that my seatmates were not pleased here's the thing southern English should still sound like English just English after a few beers I would have loved if the dialects hadn't taken me so much out of the moment Susan Graham I should start with how much I love her because I do I think she's an exquisite musician I do feel like this night she might have been vocally off in the role of Mrs. Desrochers, the mother. Was she tired? I couldn't tell if it was a choice or if she was a little fatigued or if there was something vocally that just wasn't working. I, I'm not sure. I will say that I loved her acting choices. You know, the mother is often dubbed as kind of a small, weak character. And since she is six feet tall, Susan Graham was not going to be able to make her small in stature. But what she did do is she gave her kind of a fumbling confused, how did we get here quality that I really loved. I only wish her voice had felt smoother in that evening. And hopefully it continues to, uh, to get stronger as the production goes on. My key takeaway, this is a bold, gorgeous production. It's worthy of your evening. Questionable dialects aside, it is a chance to see rock star veterans, largely promising Ryan Center musicians, and have an experience that not many A houses have been brave enough to take on. The pre-recorded sound clips of the folk church tune themes are going to permeate and they're going to help tell you this controversial story of the American criminal justice system. And hopefully, it will leave you wanting more. Ashley Hardgrave playing Monday evening quarterback for us on the production of Jake Heggie's Dead Men Walking at Lyric Opera of Chicago. So I also saw Monday Dead evening Walking. quarterback. Yeah, it was nice to have him. <laughs> I would never do a Southern accent. I sound ridiculous. I need um, you to do it. No, I can't. Sorry. Um, I was right. at the Prima, and uh, I'm glad that she had the courage to talk about Susan Graham. I don't want to pile on because... You know, Susan Graham is a beloved artist, and we don't want to make any enemies here on Opera Box Score. But I'll just say that, like, her voice has this special thing that it does, like these floated pennies to me, which are very, very exquisite. And um, I felt like that was the one thing she kept going back to, and that was the only thing I was really enjoying about her performance, uh, Susan Graham, that, the night that I saw it. I thought um, Patricia Reset was incredible. And I was, I was surprised to read the Chicago Tribune review um, which admittedly is not by 
a critic who I think we're starting to form a beef with some of the uh, what's well, what's going on there. I mean, the thing is, like, he gave he gave the review. I mean, he gave the production a really great review, but he sort of poo pooed uh, Patricia Rossett's acting, and I thought that Patricia Rossett was like in her own league as an actress. Like, I thought what she was doing was so careful and so knowing her the body of her work and knowing how like engaged she is physically at all the roles she takes on i saw her doing a lot more subtle work and maybe for the critic it wasn't enough it was too subtle which i you know i could take that but i just having known having seen what else she's capable of i was actually watching her very carefully i thought that all her choices were very very clear and sweet and tender and feminine and strong tenors well and it's but it's such a small role but it yeah. can be so impactful i think one of the parents is also a tenor it is yeah uh but this role um i mean out of nowhere this voice comes i mean like after having heard you know about an hour of the show maybe like 45 minutes of the show and we get this character who doesn't have a lot to sing but man oh man is it a voice and i was like i went right to my program like who is this guy and I saw his name, Clay Hilly, who I also heard this summer uh, at Chicago Symphony Orchestra at Ravinia Festival when they did Mahler 8. He also was very impressive in that. I think he was actually um, not the first person cast in the Mahler 8. I think he was like the substitute. So it was a surprise. And I'm glad that Chicago audiences have had a chance to hear a little bit of him. It's my understanding that he's understudying Siegfried uh, when the ring cycle returns uh, later on this year. So I've actually asked Clay Hilly to be our guest on the show, and I think we can promise that next week you will hear an interview with uh, rising Heldon tenor Clay Hilly. And I do want to just congratulate um, Whitney Morrison, a soprano who I've been watching since she's been doing storefront opera here in Chicago. Um, she did the Ryan Opera Center uh, apprenticeship, and now she is reengaged at Lyric Opera as a you know, a full-fledged artist. And uh, she has got an incredible instrument. Her voice is just very luxurious in tone quality. And she's a very passionate actress. And um, it was a pretty big assignment. Uh, Sister Rose is like the other woman who has the most singing to do uh, in the show and um, has a lot of like churchy music to sing um and there's like this really beautiful duet that feels a lot like a boy like that would kill your brother forget that boy duet you know mm -hmm. and so it's a pretty big um it's a pretty big role and i was uh, i was worried that it was maybe too big for her but she she handled it with grace and yeah her voice sounded really really beautiful in it so that's what i have to add to the show i i do think that um you know you should see it if you're interested just as as you said I sort of miss Michael Mays. Uh, I don't know why Lyric didn't decide to cast him. Um, maybe we'll get him some other time. Appreciate it, Oliver, very much. Hey, let's uh, play out this segment with a little clip from the show. This is from Act Two. It's the execution scene. Sister Helen's aria, he will gather us around, all around.
Joyce DiNonato singing from Jake Hagee's opera Dead Man Walking, currently playing at Lyric Opera of Chicago. After the break, lots happening in opera land. ARC shed some pounds. West Side Story shed some songs. It's all up next. Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. If you are in the Chicagoland area and want to help support new voices in opera, check out New Moon Opera. True to Shakespearean form, Imogen Imogen and Leonate are star-crossed lovers torn apart by fate. Um, George, how do you pronounce those names? Imogen and Leonate. And you know this because you're white. Well, I know this because I read Shakespeare. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, I, sure. reach, like... I read Shakespeare. Wait a second. Is this Orpheus and Eurydice? No. Or is... no this is New Moon this... Opera, bruh. Where were you? Yeah. Listen just, to the ad. Here. Really from... Will they find a way to be together when so many are conspiring against them? Don't look back. To f- exactly. Don't. To find out, join New Moon Opera. New Moon. I it makes me think, like, so you should I, drop your pants. I am New not moon. a beer person, oh, but the first beer that I learned to like was Blue Moon. Well, it's an, e- it's an yeah. easy, it's, it's an refreshing. easy, like, yeah. unfiltered, nice wheat yeah. beer. To find out, join New Moon Opera on Friday, so November funny. 22nd, for a workshop performance of Chicago composer Elizabeth Rudolph's new opera, Imogen, based on Shakespeare's, George? Cymbeline. Cymbeline, see? There we go. This is a unique opportunity to experience and explore a new operatic work. How awesome. You could be in the room for the very first time a work is being presented. You know, people who are at... Uh, that first production workshop of Dog Days saw like the beginning of an opera that's probably going to be part of the American canon. I mean, I'd be able to is, say so. you were there. I was yeah. there when like the you know Tigers won the '84 mm-hmm. World Series. Yeah. I was there when <laughs> I was this. there when Elizabeth Rudolph's new opera Imogen. 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 Isn't there like a, a indie there's a singer Imogen, Imogen Heap? Heap? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, Imogen I think, Heap. I think that's what it's about. I have about. no idea what you're talking Tickets about. to this are available at newmoonopera.org. That's newmoonopera, and I think you can spell all of those, dot org, yes. O-R-G. All one word. End of ad. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know from what happened in Opera Land in the past week. A recent article in The Atlantic magazine by Lin-Manuel Miranda talks about the role of art and the art he's made in politically turbulent times. Link to that on our website, operaboxscore.com. To celebrate the first-ever World Opera Day, UK Opera's North has produced The People's Lullabies, a series of short films showcasing performances by participants of the company's community outreach program. Placido Domingo has withdrawn from his scheduled performance at the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. 78-year-old opera star cited the, quote, complexity of the planned theatrical project, but made no reference to the sexual harassment allegations he's faced. Lyric Opera of Chicago will get new state-of-the-art seats throughout the theater with a pleasing ergonomic design starting next season. American countertenor Anthony Roth Costanzo has developed E-Pulse, a short, super-effective workout to tone and strengthen. He used it to prep for a notable nude scene in Philip Glass' Akhenaten at English National Opera. The Korean-born lyric soprano Hei Kyung Hong has now portrayed the role of Mimi in Puccini's La Boheme 66 times at the Metropolitan Opera since her first outing in 1987. Avant-garde director Ivo Van Hova is gearing up to present a fresh take on the classic American musical West Side Story next month. 
He got permission from the Bernstein estate to cut I Feel Pretty and the Somewhere Ballet sequence. Let's see if he can get the uh, Gypsy and Matador choruses out of Verdi's La Traviata. American mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton has made her Broadway debut on November 8th at the Niederlander Theater in concert with Kristen Chenoweth. We still think that Barton should be cast as Ursula in the live-action Little Mermaid remake. Patrons of Richard Wagner's Parsifal at Indiana University were met with homemade signs and pamphlets of the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition reading, Behind the Scenes. We want to raise awareness about these working conditions that are affecting our friends, Jacobs School of Music graduate student worker Tyler Erickson said. Our friends couldn't be here to speak out about it because they are participating in the opera, end quote. Marin Alsop has been named the new music director of the Austrian Broadcasting Company's Radio Symphony Orchestra, one of four professional symphony orchestras in the greater Vienna region. The orchestra had been looking for a new candidate for a successor to Cornelius Meister, who's leaving after this season. American baritone Will Liverman made his Met debut in 2018, and he's going to become the first African-American to take on the role of Papageno in Mozart's The Magic Flute at the Met. Some of legendary opera star Dame Eva Turner's garments are being auctioned off in Salisbury in England. The great diva is best known for having performed the role of Puccini's Turandot in 1926. Over to the DL, after canceling performances at Lyric in the title role of Don Giovanni, baritone Idlar Abdradazakov, sorry, Oliver, he's laughing in the background, has announced that his wife is pregnant. And on this day, November 11th, today in 1883, the birth of Swiss conductor Ernest Anserme. 1858, the birth of the so-called last castrato, Alessandro Moreschi. 1817, the first performance of Rossini's Armida in Naples. That was for you, Tony Berese. And in 1727, it was the first performance of Handel's Riccardo Primo at the King's Theatre in London. That was for you, Oliver. And that is your two-minute drill. Tobias, that was for you. This is Opera Box Score. With George Cedarquist, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and Oliver the Man Camacho. was Hey Kyung Hong uh, in the aria Mi Chiamano Mi Mi. We found it on YouTube. I don't know where that's from, but it's from a live concert. I don't uh, think it's from the Met. No, it's, it's definitely not. Yeah. She came out in a red dress, so Mimi shouldn't have a dress <laughs> on. She should have rags on. You know? <laughs> rags. Yeah, but Hey Kyung Hong has been, has been singing forever, and she's still killing it. And uh, she is uh, a South Korean soprano. And um, yeah, I mean, that's she's one of the few that's singing at the Met, but she at least has been there for a long time. So God bless her. Ivo Vanhova is a director that I absolutely admire. I saw his production of um, All My Sons, the Arthur Miller play that was at the Goodman Theater mm-hmm. last season. This article, which we'll put on our website, operaboxscore.com, it's from Vogue, talks about him as the world's most sought-after director. Is he? The one thing I just want to say about Ivo Van Hova is that he gives me hope. 
because he's 60 years old. Mm. And that means that I still have so many years left in me of directing. Of podcasting. And there's so much <laughs> that I can still accomplish in my directing career. As directors, we just get better and better the older and the older we get until mm. everything goes to you know what, and mm. then it's all over. It's saggy, yeah. But our ideas, Oliver, get very, very saggy at some point. But uh, the man George, if you can do a Traviata and get rid of the uh, Matador chorus, I would really yes, appreciate please. that. What is that? I mean, I understand that, I like the, that the Violetta and the Alfredo need to like rest and change into their costumes. But isn't that what intermission is for? Dude, it's the most un. It's Unnecessary part yeah. of any opera. If there's anyone who's going to like cut that, it's going to be him, or it would be Barry Kosky at the Komische Oper in. I have Berlin. yet to see any production that handles that well and makes it interesting. Even the Willie Decker <laughs> production, it's like <laughs> because ugh. it doesn't. It's not good. Yeah. Yeah. It's a yeah I think somewhere maybe. those words exist in the back of my head, though, for the Matador chorus. Hey, do you know, what, guys? I just found out that Placido Domingo has been accused of sexual harassment. Yeah, you've been gone for a long. You've time. You've been gone so. for a while. <laughs> Did you know that, that Jesse Norman died? Yeah, you've been <laughs> I literally you have just been... found that out. It's been so long since I've been on the show. You know, one thing that, speaking of, I don't know why this popped in my head right now, but I forgot to mention, Ashley was talking about English diction and Southern diction. and like Southern Dixon. We, diction. as American singers, our Kansas City, Kansas. are not even conscious of when we sing in Italian or when we sing in French or when we sing in German, what accent we might be taking on, you know? We don't oh, know. I used to think about that all the time. Yeah. Like yeah, because any good diction coach, like that. I remember one time singing. And this is I drink. I sang a concert in Germany, mm-hmm. and the guy was like, <laughs> he's like, for an American, that was great American German. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, well, great. Yeah. I, but you know what I mean? Like I thought about that stuff all the time. Yeah. And further, I actually singing in English. I know that there are certain vowels that I really. I kind of I don't have like a speech impediment or anything, but I kind of have a bit of a lisp, and I say some words really weird. And I was constantly aware of that. Yeah, but, but, you ger- but German has Hochdeutsch, right? Like it has this agreed upon accent right. and grammar, which around the country is going to be adhered to when people don't want to speak. Yeah, and dialect. like if. So surely when people are singing, that's what they're doing. Right. And to Ashley's point, she's from Arkansas. I'm from southern Kansas. Those and then Angola State Prison. Uh, those are really, 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 really different dialects. Yeah. And it's kind of, yeah. I mean, I haven't seen Dead Man Walking. I went and played in a flag football game instead of hey using man, my whatever, tickets. Whatever, so whatever you go, no one says you have to go to opera every minute of the day. Speaking hey, of Lyric Opera Chicago, so they're spending new capital, seats. capital on new seats. And, you know, Lyric Opera has been shrinking its season and has been adding musical to the end of it. And, I mean, they don't always spend their money on, like, the premium casts, you know? We get a lot of Ryan Opera Center people alums, which is great because some of them are actually the people we want to hear because they're fantastic. But, you know, we're not getting Diana Damrau singing Lucia. We're not getting whatever, XYZ, you know, mm-hmm. singers, like the real top of the game, you know, singers in some of these roles. Yeah. We're getting Sandra Robinowski. That's great. I mean, I mean, I'm ca- calling my blessings about the things we do get. Here. You're saying they're investing in the wrong things. I don't know. I feel like they're not investing in. I think. OK, let's talk about this, though. What they are doing is reinventing the floor map for the main floor. Mm-hmm. They are. I mean, it, it's always boring when people invest in infrastructure yeah. for in any form of art, government institution. Anybody investing in infrastructure, it's going to be frowned upon. You're going to say, well, wait, 
that doesn't that does nothing for the survival of the art form yeah. comma but if you, i mean they're not going to be there for the ring cycle having nice seats and lyric rearranging it so everyone is going to have a window to view through on the main floor mm-hmm. i think it's a huge investment on their part and making more handicapped accessible seating no all of that stuff is great yes they just should shrink the house i mean we talked about this they need yeah. to like they should just cl- put a tarp over the top deck no it's they ex- should you do it just like the nfl football stadiums you just cover up or the mlb stadiums you just cover it up with the tarp no, seriously they need to turn, logo, they need no, to turn the gallery into a bar like with with like thick glass that they can't that's soundproof so people can see what's happening on stage but they can also like have a glass of champagne and you like mean like up at the top yeah like, and then that oh, would be I like, like the premium it's like the vip box everybody and like people can actually have a social space at the lyric opera because that's exactly the what they have at like nfl stadiums right, right yeah. exactly but i mean put a swimming pool up there people who <laughs> show up late and actually like oh we showed up late <laughs> hey okay yeah. do you guys remember talking about the indiana thing with the Parsifal? Yeah. yeah, I do remember Boy, that. those yeah. kids are still really upset about it. Well, I think it. that this protest is about something else, actually. <laughs> it might be, but the but, fact that, I mean. But, but I actually, but about, I heard reports. About what? I've heard about reports what? about, oh, right. I just saw that article. It literally just came in. Because <laughs> um, it's the, actually the, quite vague. Uh, like, working conditions. Uh, uh, maybe maybe just need to do another pass on this next week um, and do a little more digging here. Yeah. There's, um, clear, there's clearly problems here at the Jacobs School of Music. And look. Like, it's one of the top flight music schools in the country. So. Yeah. I, I It's just those kids of, I keep saying those kids. That's so patronizing on yeah. my part. It is, I don't it is, know. Whatever. It is patronizing. But anyway, I, I heard that it went off really well. Like, people who went to see Parsifal really enjoyed it. So I guess you can do student Parsifal when you hire ringers <laughs> in the main roles. Well, I so, mean, yeah, that's the other yeah. thing, right, is like. It's a school of music doing Parsifal. Is that to be commended or is that no, we not talked an about that. No, it was, it was, idea, it was yeah. a bad idea. Okay, okay wait. I, I just want to make sure. I, before we go too late into this, I want to read our, our listener mailbag. George, will you read it? Oh, yeah. This is awesome. Thanks, Laura, for sending this in. Let me pull this up. Uh, she says, hey, y'all, I'm a little disappointed with the hard-hitting sports analysis of Roll Tide in this week's episode. This is from some weeks ago. Considering the recent OBS interview with Daniela Mack, Lizette Oropesa's upcoming Tucker Award Gala, and QB Joe Burrow's introduction of LSU fans to the foreign concept of an effective passing game, ouch, wouldn't it be far more accurate to say Go Tigers? P.S. Ed Orgeron would be a more entertaining operatic <laughs> character than Nick Saban, okay. and we all know it. <laughs> this is my favorite listener mailbag. Okay, so LSU goes on the road, upsets Alabama yeah. uh, this past weekend. And actually, yeah. it wasn't upset. It was a butt whooping. And so if you're not familiar, Ed Orgeron actually was the subject of a book in 2006 about college football recruiting called Meat Market. It was one of my favorite books I've ever read. Ed Orgeron is an American treasure, and he's about as as Louisianan as a Louisianan can be. Right. Um, and so I he love. He has this. three teeth. Is that what you're saying? Uh, no, but he sounds like a Cajun. Okay. okay. I mean, he sound, and he's just Louisiana to the core. Cajun, Cajun. Oh man, it's amazing. So I love that somebody on that's listening is a huge LSU fan. As a Kansas football fan, I'm grateful because we have Les Miles as our coach now, and he was the longtime coach of LSU. LSU they fired him. I think there's there was no animosity there. I think. It was just they wanted to be competing for championships every year. Anyway, I love Ed Orgeron. Uh, Laura, thank you. 
Um, we can be. I mean, she wants more sports on the show. We'll get more sports oh, on the show. I mean, I talk about Patrick Mahomes all the time because I literally dream about him. It's a problem, but not a problem, man. It's, I don't know. It's, Do you there's, watch there's, Good there's Place? There's basically no difference between Place? Oliver's yeah. obsession. No. Well, with Oliver's going to get married on Wimbledon center center court. With with uh, uh, Tobias's obsession with Patrick Mahomes and like people's obsession with. Sandra Rodvanowski, like the fanaticism of opera and sports, is very, very similar. I feel like that's one of the I, main principles. I want to say I don't think it's an obsession. Five years ago, it's it's not obsession as much as it is a sincere appreciation for greatness. Yeah. And so when it's there and you can clearly recognize it, same with the singer, same with a great conductor, you you want to witness it in person. Let's let's call it what it is. It's athleticism. It is athleticism and opera. It's about breathing, muscle mass. Let's talk about athleticism in sports. These things are absolutely parallel. Look, Anthony Roth Costanzo. This, this guy's working out. What was his What was his thing called? The um, E Pulse, a short, super effective workout to tone and strengthen. I thought there were like lotions that toned and strengthened, but maybe that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know so little <laughs> about this. I'll just say um, bulimia and speed. Those are yeah. <laughs> if I was going to be naked on stage, I would just like okay in that order. Yeah, or, yeah. or doesn't it really? Doesn't All really. these opportunities. I mean, like, I, but you need energy that you have if, to eat. So. Yeah, you got to eat. But yeah. also, I mean, it's investing in your body, just like you invest in your voice. Sure. Look good, feel good. I think I yeah. get what you're saying. I actually played the Las Castrado Alessandro Moreschi for my. High school students just so they would know what that's supposed to sound like, and they they thought it was very upsetting when I told them who he was and like what his deal was. They were yeah. very upset and what it. had happened. Yeah, but also you know we did not have obviously recording technology during the height of the castrato, you know, and so this sure. guy was just some poor chump that like was singing in a church choir that like happened to be a castrato. So, but but would they have been able to appreciate or respond to the music if you had not told them? Uh, I, I, like heard, I played him singing the Ave Maria, the Guno Ave Maria. Yeah. And there's something very tragic about the way he sings it. Like his, his phrasing is very upsetting. <laughs> but it's a, he also is old when he recorded it. So it's not like it was like a pristine performance, you know. I actually feel a little bad now that you told me that. Oh, well, look it up. It's you're going to feel worse. Yeah. No, no. Uh, <laughs> let's wrap this up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Hey, everyone. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight on Opera Box Score. So great to be back here in the Lakeside Studio. I'm George Cedarquist. Time for a good call and a bad call. Gentlemen, you want to thumb wrestle for who's going to go first? I'll, I'll go or? first because mine is a little bit longer, and I'll try yeah. to go My past. good call is that George is here. Um, this is from my, male, my friend who's a male soprano, Eli McCormick. Uh, I'm going to quote. A swing and a miss for gender-inclusive forms from Aspen Music Festival. If you're a classical musician, especially if you're cisgender uh, and or not an Aspen Music Festival applicant and or have a doctorate or other club and would like to ask them to look at their choices, please do send them a nice email. Uh, if you'd like to help and aren't sure where to start, here's what's wrong with this picture. And if you go to Facebook, you'll see that there is this whole thread in the Classical Singer Forum of how Aspen Music Festival was asking for people's gender assigned at birth because they were trying to be more inclusive but they just went about it the wrong way so a swing and a miss sorry about that as yeah festival. so that's a, a good call and a bad call it's, then kind of yeah. wrapped into one. Oh, i'll give a, i'll give a shout out good call to um our dear friend matt cummings who's in the everest aleko double bill coming up at chicago opera theater this weekend the, the chorus 
Go, Matt. Is absolutely enormous. It's over 100 choristers and orchestra members. This is at the Harris Theater. Uh, and then Everest, uh, Joby Talbot, and Gene Shear. That is going to be huge. Very, very huge. Hope Matt is doing well. Uh, in rehearsals and getting ready for the show. That's it. Week's uh, edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. General managers at WNUER, Henry Moskal and Somil Songby. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at VoxerShorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. Tobias Wright in charge of that account. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Tobias Wright, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation and curse the early onset of winter weather. We're back on Monday, November 18th. 9 p.m. Central, more opera, more hot takes, more interviews, more hot cocoa. Join us. This is WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1, Evanston, Chicago. Chicago's sound experiment.